yourself. Um, I'm 17 years old and a senior in high school. I was born in the Philippines, lived there for 10 years. Then I moved here when I was 10, obviously. Um, my parents got divorced when I was three, four years old, which has like created a really big shift in my life. The way I view like relationships, the way I view my parents, mm. um, love just in general. Yeah. And so um, I know that we've spoken in the past and we've talked a little bit about how you grew up in the church and what's that been like? What's your experience with the church? Well, my dad's side of the family is very religious, so we went to church like every Sunday. I'd go to like Sunday school and, you know, we'd have the little arts and crafts and mm. stuff like that. And I was, I was very involved. I led like worship night for the youth at one point, but I've never been invested as much because for me, it was just a thing that I did with family every Sunday. Um, you know, it wasn't like my whole life mm. at that point. I didn't really know anything. I didn't read the Bible. Um, I didn't listen to the sermons because mm. I was like 10 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm not very patient when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, your experience when you got here from the Philippines? Uh, you were 10, 11? Yeah, I was 10. Um, I started high, uh, fifth grade. I was made fun of a lot for my accent, actually, because mm. I said a lot of like words differently, mm. and it wasn't the right way. And it was very hard fitting in with like the American girls. Like they did like sleepovers, and mm. they went for like ice cream in the middle of the night, and I could not do that because my parents are strict, and you know they're Asian, and it's just like it's hard to fit in with them. And it took me like a long time to just get used, it's a culture shock. It's yeah. definitely a culture shock, yeah. So what would you say Christianity is to you now, or when someone says they're a Christian, what do you expect from them, or, or even of yourself as a Christian? A lot of love mm -hmm. from Christians, a lot of love, a lot of acceptance, um, just a lot of compassion from them, because I know a lot of Christians go through their own stuff, and they have God for that, and they have their faith to come back to. And when I think of like Christians in that kind of community, I think um, going back to the roots, and I think of like accountability and holding each other accountable to you know each other's struggles and our faith and staying in our faith mm -hmm. through the struggles. So. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah, I love that you said acceptance um, mm -hmm. and love. I feel like, it, especially at this time, yeah, that's so hard, right, to find just love, just down to the, back to the roots, like you said. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. And so, when you think of like outward acts of love, when you think of people who are trying to demonstrate that they're Christians, like what comes to mind for you? Well. <laughs> There's been like a really bad connotation with being Christian because um, There's been some people who have been condemning When it comes to like accepting other people and loving on other people because of their own beliefs and I think like most important thing is love. I mean God Jesus said love God and then love one another, you know, and it's like the top top is love um, yeah, I just, 
I think it's so important to just love on people despite mm-hmm. our differences mm-hmm. in like beliefs or identities. Like we all have different stuff, and yeah, um, yeah there's just been a really bad connotation with the church when it comes to like social stuff, mm-hmm. and we seem we tend to forget that you know we just have to love on each other. So you said that there's a bad connotation uh, when it comes to the church and social stuff. Uh, how do you think that we can change that? Doing life with people, I think. Uh, getting to know them and getting to know their story. And getting to know where this connotation came from. Especially from those that are very critical of religion, of God, of Jesus and his teachings, I think it's so important to reach out to those people and get to know their story and why they think of the church that way. And then hopefully, you know, once you keep talking about their lives, you can get to kind of explain God's teachings from the Bible and like why this connotation might seem off a little bit. It's doing yeah, doing life for them, uh, being there for them throughout their lives, uh, showing them what God has done for us also, like making it evident that God's doing things, that God is working in us, and hopefully there's a change, there's a shift in their heart, and that they see that. Welcome to the Protagonistas. So, I had a sort of mini revelation a couple weeks ago. I was meeting with one of my groups of high school girls, Francesca, the young woman you just heard from is in one of the groups, and we were meeting on our usual Wednesday evening for coffee and Bible study. I had them take a few moments at the beginning of our time together, as I usually do, to do this thing called a hear journal. I worked in college ministry for a few years, and I had this one book that I was trained to use as a sort of curriculum for discipleship. Now, although my theological beliefs have changed pretty significantly from that of the author of the book, I've still somewhat used the guidelines that are taught. One of the main ones being the hear method of Bible study. In here, the H stands for highlight, E for explain, A for apply, and R for respond. And in this method, you use the acronym to help you study or dig into a specific passage. This has been pretty much my default for the last few years, and I haven't thought much of it until, well, until a couple of Wednesdays ago. As I was going around having the girls talk about what they highlighted, explaining to me what and how they'll apply the text and respond to it, I noticed a pattern. Now, we're going through the book of Mark, walking detail by detail through the life of Jesus, and how he interacted with people, many outcasts and people that no one else wanted to interact with. And we had just read this beautiful account of Jesus healing a man with demons and healing Simon's mother-in-law. And I noticed that as each girl was sharing, when she'd get to the application and response part, everyone seemed to share about something that they weren't doing well enough in their own lives. Applications were, I should care more, or pray more, or do better, or I'm not doing this well enough. And While I'm all about self-improvement and being the best version of yourself you can be, something sort of hit me. You see, as I noticed the pattern in these girls, my mind started racing backward to my last group of college young women and how every week our conversations seemed to circulate around the same thing. 
I didn't pray enough this week. I didn't read the Bible enough this week. And of course, I try and remind them every week that it's okay, there's grace, yada, yada. But I didn't quite see it back then how I did the past Wednesday with this new group of girls. We wrapped up Bible study and on my way home, I just felt off. I kept thinking to myself, is this the kind of Christianity that we've been conditioned to pass on to others? The kind that keeps reminding you every time you come to the Bible or prayer that it's about you and how crappy of a job you're doing at life? Ever since I started seminary, a big theme has been that we get away from this application-first style of reading scripture. We're taught to sort of back up and be faithful to the genre that it's in, and the context that it's written in, and the audience it's speaking to, and pay attention to the grander story, the narrative that's going on. And while I've known this intellectually and been using it to write my papers, etc., I realized I wasn't living it out in ministry and even in my personal life. You see, this group of seven 12th graders who all have this pressure from family and teachers to get into college and keep up with sports and extracurricular activities, and they're just being trained by me to read the Bible in the same way that they are to keep up with homework. Sure, we say that that's not what we intend and obviously not what we want, but let's face it, that's what much of evangelicalism is. And so I had been sitting on this for a few days, and it so happened that my friend Joyce, another Filipina-American that you'll get to hear from in a couple minutes, she invited me to join her in leading a breakout session about empowering the next generation at the LA Justice Conference this past weekend. Now, Joyce is a PhD candidate and has been working with teen moms for years, and this work has fed much into her research on a very famous teen mom, Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, a very special and interesting character in the Jesus narrative. She talks about their marginalization and thinks through theologically what it means that they were chosen to be such important parts of Jesus' story. I'm going to play a clip of what Joyce shared during our breakout session because it really helped solidify what I had been wrestling with. Now, as a trigger warning, Joyce does mention some difficult stuff concerning sexual assault. So... One of the things that I've been researching is Mary, mother of Jesus, as, as a method, as a method of empowerment, as a method of leadership, as a method of God saying who is highly favored. So I've been developing this Mariology from a Protestant standpoint based on her marginalization, right? And so we're mostly familiar with the Catholic narrative um, of, of um, queen mother, of, of, of kind of pedestaling her, and Protestants historically have completely um, eschewed that and said, okay, I don't, we don't want to worship her, which that's not the case, but that's, that's how the, the evangelicals have kind of taken it. But, but the way that I've been looking at Mary and have been research, researching her is, you know what, let's look at her from, from her lowly status and see what God did with that. And so, I, you know, as I was considering her, it was like, oh, she had no status. She was economically vulnerable. She was legally vulnerable, right? She, was, she could have been called out for death penalty for adultery if people didn't believe her. Right? I mean, Joseph tried to leave her. And, you know, so it, it, there's all sorts of things that made her marginal, 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 marginal. And yet God called her highly favored. And yet before she said yes, God called her highly favored. Before she even said, okay, I, I'll be the mother of, of the Messiah, the one to come. Before all of that, she was already highly favored and the Lord was with her. And so when I look at that very particular point in time in, in history and say, well, if God can call her highly favored in her very marginalized status, then why am I not looking at the teen moms that I work with that way? Why am I not looking at other mar women who've been abused, women who've been assaulted, women who've been raped? Why am I not looking at other marginalized women that way? Right? 
And, and so this is how, this has been the way I've been looking at the Bible recently, and I'm like, oh, dang, there's this subtext happening. There's this undercover on the low the theology that God's been doing in our, in our scriptures that we haven't always read because the way that we've been told is, oh, she was obedient, mm -hmm. and that's why she's so great, mm -hmm. right? Her obedience was the thing that made her great. Nope. I'm actually going to say it was just because she was her that made her so great. In her marginality, she was already great before she said yes. It wasn't her obedience. It was because she was who she was. And that meant all of the whole package. Having nothing, having no status, having no money, having no title. God still called her highly favored. Uh, what I like about this is at the end of this call, this assignment, that she's the one with a war cry, right? And, and we, call it, we, ca we call it the Magnificat. We call it the you know, Mary song. I call it the war cry. It was a social justice cry, not just for the present time, but for the future, the way that it's written. It's already a prophetic calling for the future that things are going to change because of Christ. And I'm going to be part of that. Sorry, I could keep going. That's why I'm doing the research. But uh, another, another way, uh, another method was Mary Magdalene was the unlikely choice, right? She was, they, they threw her um, in front of Jesus and said, hey, we caught, caught her doing adultery. To be honest, I, I was thinking about it, and I was like, that's funny. I mean, there's two people when there's adultery that happens. Um, but also, I don't know that she was necessarily consenting to this sexual activity that they ca caught her in, right? I don't know that they didn't set her up. I don't know that she wasn't being raped at the time, and they decided, great, here's someone that we can throw in front of Jesus and, and try and trap him. I don't know that. I'm not trying, I'm just saying, in that time and space, and as I read um, Womanist Histories, there's strong possibilities, right, when we, look through, when we look through the Bible and the way that women were treated in that time. But yet Jesus chose to reveal himself post-resurrection to this woman first, right? The men had already left. She's still at the tomb, and Jesus is like, she didn't recognize him at the time. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? That like really threw me off because I was like, dang, Jesus chose Mary to show up and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start the church here with you. You go tell everybody else that I rose from the dead. You be the first church. You be the one to tell the good news. I'm gonna choose you, the one that people don't believe, the one that they accused of, I'm gonna choose you. Not the disciples, the, the men left. I'm gonna choose you, Mary. Yeah, you, the one with the demons. Yeah, I healed that. Yeah, you, the one that was accused of adultery, yeah, I healed that. These are the subtext methods of what God has done to empower women that we need to kind of keep in front of us. So all that to say is this is what, when I'm thinking about raising the next generation, I'm not just thinking of this like social like, yeah, women are, yeah. I truly believe that in the gospels that God believes this too because I no longer can look at Mary and Mary Magdalene and believe that you have to be a certain type of woman, a certain type of education, a certain type of cleaned up, dressed up, suited up person to be able to be used by God because they had nothing. And yet God chose them as the method. I love that. They had nothing, and God chose to use them. And not necessarily because of how great they were at life, 
Now, going back to my high school girls, in the beginning of this episode, you heard from Francesca. I was curious to know what Christianity means to her. She's 17, she's an immigrant, and she's a Christian. And something beautiful that she said, that's something I think Joyce implies when she speaks of subtext, is going back to the basics. Love. God chose a marginalized Mary and he loved her just because he did. This really changed the way I wanted to pass on reading the Bible to the next generation. And so, this past Wednesday, which was actually yesterday, I met with the same group of high school girls again. We shared about our week, our highs, our lows, if we had any, quote, sunflower moments, which is what we call special little snippets of beauty we experienced throughout the week that help remind us of the divine. And then when it came time to open the book of Mark, I told them we wouldn't be doing hair journals anymore. And I told them why. I wanted them to read the story with no strings attached and just receive from it without feeling any pressure to perform. Like I said, I'm all about self-improvement, but when it comes to the Bible, I just want it to flow naturally from something that really touches them. So we just read. And you want to hear something really cool? For the first time in this group, they use the phrase, I'm shook, which is teenage slang for I'm really moved. And it was so life-giving. Now I'm going to turn the page a bit and focus on marginalization. Working with students this year has made me realize that this is huge, how they tie marginalization to social issues, to Christianity. For a lot of young people nowadays, Christianity and social justice are tied together. So next, you're going to hear from a very talented young woman. Her name is Cheryl. She's a college student. But the reason I wanted you to hear from her is because she's a DACA recipient. And you're going to hear a bit of her story, which comes from a video that I've linked to the episode notes. And then you'll hear from one of her professors, Heather Thompson Day. Heather is also an author and preacher, and she runs Envision Magazine, which is a magazine run by students for students. I wanted to chat with Heather because she's committed to the next generation. It's her vocation and ministry day in and day out. And I wanted you to hear her perspective on college students and Christianity. Hope you enjoy. When I moved to America, they shackled me, tied my hands against a wall, changed my name, put a label on me. They cut my wings, called me alien, unwanted, illegal. They told me to go back home, so I wandered, hid in the shadows, walked in the desert for 40 days, made a refuge in a cemetery. I hid, dyed my hair blonde, put on blue contacts. I distorted my vision so that every time I looked in the mirror, I was like them. But it seems that they could not change my voice. Please, do not be ashamed of who I am. This is the only way I can wake up, look in the mirror, and like who I have become. I beg for forgiveness in this land that I never knew. I was told to trust them. The DACA would save us from this hell we had been living in. So our wings began to grow, coming out of the shadows. Bodies began to resurrect from cemeteries. It was the first time I was allowed to cry. I watered the soil, got rid of the tombstones, harvested my crops. As my fruit began to grow, I was deceived. 
They kissed my cheek and built their walls higher, burned our boats, took my family, mocked us, persecuted me, took away my right to live, told me I was only meant to be asleep, where they could not see me, where they didn't hear me sing six feet under. I was only a dreamer, better off dead. But I refuse to be quiet, because we will still climb your walls, burn down our boats, and we will swim oceans. Cut down my wings, and I will grow them again. I am not afraid. I am no longer hiding. I am a dreamer, and I am here to stay. All right, so we have Heather Thompson Day here, and um, I'm so excited to speak with Heather. So we actually met on Twitter, somewhat met, I guess you can say. We um, virtually met. Yes. <laughs> right? That's my new joke that I keep <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, so we... We met on Twitter. Um, I had put out like a, you know, a, a thing looking for women who do spoken word or poetry or that kind of stuff. And um, Heather responded uh, with an incredible video, the one that you just heard. So yeah, I was super interested after watching that video and, you know, listening to the video and it was incredible. And then I went on Heather's website and just saw that you are an author and a speaker and you started a magazine and you work with students and that was so exciting for me. So I, would, I just wanted to talk to you about all of that. Well, um, I'm excited to talk about it. Let's talk about uh, Cheryl and just your students in general. And, and I'm curious, I worked with college students for a while and, and I loved it. That was um, one of my favorite things. And so I want to know, you know, what's your, what's been your experience working with DACA students and just students of color in general? Yeah, so I actually teach at the most diverse university in the nation. So in and I, one of the courses I teach is intercultural communications. That's my background is I teach communication courses. Um, but it's definitely brought a new depth to the education process because there's so much um, just as just down to like the videos that I used to put into lectures, mm-hmm. not thinking about making sure, because where I came from before, it was very much predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Um, and transitioning now to the most diverse university in the nation, I mean, in one class, I will have students from um, the Congo, from mm-hmm. the Middle East, from mm-hmm. Australia, from Asia, and we all sit down and learn together. And it's, it's definitely unique because we all have very different communication patterns and things like that. But for um, Envision Magazine, so the magazine is a nationally award-winning magazine. It's a Christian collegiate magazine, and it's produced pretty much fully by students and Amazing. for students, and even down to the DACA article that um, the video that you guys saw is representative of. I pretty much let the students decide what content is going to be in the magazine. Mm. Um, I asked them. I think part of the problem in Christianity is because we, we, where we're losing young people is because we keep asking the same people what they're interested in. So mm-hmm. I make sure to step back um, and not put in articles that I would be interested in reading. I, I leave it totally up to the students to talk about things that matter to them. And so that's where this article was born from, mm-hmm. um, which they called it DACA and the Death of Dreams. And Again, I was really happy because it was something that I probably wouldn't have thought to write about. So I'm so glad that we opened it up and let students pick. And um, so the article is basically just some of the statistics on students. We have a, a high DACA population here at Andrews University. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then even for the video that they created, I just told them I wanted a video to go with it and they created what you saw. So I really did not give them tons of, um, like creative direction. I just told them I wanted to do something super cool that would connect to this generation. And that's what they, they came up with. And I was obsessed with it. I actually submitted it to a button poetry competition and I'm hoping that they are able to win something for it. Cause it was just so fantastic. Oh yes. Yes. That's, that's incredible. Um, I love that you said that um, just kind of giving students like sort of just their own agency to do, you know, whatever it is that, that, that you wouldn't even think of on your own and I think that's so important yeah I I feel like a lot of times like us as teachers or as educators or um you know me you know I'm I'm studying theology like we want to just tell people what to believe right like we want to tell people or give people theology and and so something that I've I've been so um, big about lately is just giving people their own agency. Um, there's a yes. a woman that I read, um, Ada Maria Sassi Diaz. She's the mother of Mujerista theology, and that's a big thing. You know, giving Latina, poor Latina women specifically, or even older poor Latina women, their own agency to do their own theology. You know, they're capable of doing their own theology, and so I love that. I think that's such a good idea. Um, so how did that start? So tell me about like the moment you decided like I'm gonna start you know this magazine uh, for students or or just the process of that. So it's funny. I was actually I didn't start the magazine. Um, a, a mentor of mine did back when I was in grad school. I, I was a part of the very first Envision issue. Her name is Debbie Michelle. She was actually a producer for NBC Dateline, oh, and decided she wanted to start teaching. And she ended up at our university, and she wanted to create a magazine. And this is back like ten years ago, mm-hmm. uh, where magazines weren't dying quite like they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, so she started the magazine and I was a part of that very first launch. And then I worked in the public sector for a long time. And it just so happened when I got hired and came into Andrews University last year that they asked if I would be interested in, in taking over Envision. And it just felt so right considering oh, I was a part of the very first one. And literally the only teacher, Debbie Michelle is the only teacher I ever had oh, um, wow. who saw something in me and tried to mentor me. So it just felt, I'm really grateful to kind of take this from her and hopefully make it better and um, fresher. Mm -hmm. So our main thing with the magazine that we want people to see is young people who are are committed to making a difference Mm -hmm. and whatever that looks like for you. Right. So for the issue for this coming year, what I'm working on, I'm, um, I think her name is Ala Basatne mm-hmm. and she is actually the Chicago girl. They made a huge Netflix documentary on her. Um, she is a millennial and mm-hmm. she organized rebel protests on the ground in Syria. She is Syrian, mm-hmm. but she lives in Chicago and her friends and family were being killed in various attacks. And so using Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, she started organizing protests so that there would never be because it's very dangerous for them to protest if only like 10 people show up. So she would vet the people and make sure that if she had organized it, there were at least 50 people or more that had joined it. So, um, so that's who we're highlighting next time. And so throughout the Envision, we try to highlight students and young people who are, who are passionate about making a difference. And a lot of times they're doing that with very limited resources, which I think is fantastic because at least for myself, I always Mm -hmm. think all the ducks have to be in a row in order for something to, in order for me to, move forward and with these young people it's like they have nothing and they're going out there and they're doing it and her um chicago girl i I recommend everybody watch it it was on netflix it was a very popular documentary about harvard psychology today like tons of people were talking about this young girl and what she created with her laptop right with no resources 
So I just feel like there's no excuse for any of us if we want to, we really truly can be the change that we wish to see in the world. Yes. Amen. I love that. That's incredible. And I think that you're in such a good you know, spot to do that with, with, like you said, these young people that are just yes. like, all right, I have nothing to lose. Like I, you know, they're passionate They're And I think that's, that's so important. And so to have a mentor, you know, to have someone walk through that, um, or someone kind of just walk with them through that is incredible. I love that. And so tell me a little bit about yourself. So when I was about 17 years old, I had this really fantastic idea, which was to put all of my great accomplishments onto a resume and apply for a job working in radio because I, I had wanted to work in radio. I wanted to be a journalist. Okay. Um, and so I did that. And I, by the way, there was like nothing on my resume because I was 17 years old, but they <laughs> did the job. And they oh, gave wow. me this little recorder that was connected to a microphone and I would hang out in like Target parking lot and Meyer parking lot and Walmart and wait for you to walk to your car. And then I would ask you if I could ask you some questions for the news that night and edit it together and put it into the, the into the radio news. So um, I that was like at 17. So I've been working in like the communications industry for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided I wanted to teach. Um, so now I teach communications. I just finished my Ph.D. in June. And I have published six books in about the last eight years, all within the Christian market, Um, because I'm I'm, I'm really passionate. There's, Mm -hmm. I think the numbers in North America are, as far as Christians under the age of 25 in North America, it's 4%. So I'm really passionate. Like, there's Mm -hmm. this huge gap. We have the most cause-oriented generation in U.S. history, and we are not connecting for some reason with the greatest cause-oriented organization in the United mm-hmm. States. And so I'm really passionate about how we can bridge that gap mm-hmm. for young people and change the idea of what church and ministry looks like, mm-hmm. um, whether that be through writing or um, spoken word mm-hmm. or journalism, whatever. I want I want to bridge the gap. And I think now is, is such a good time, you know, with movements like the Me Too movement and like church Yes. And, and yeah, and so what kind of work do you guys do or like the students that you work with, you know, what kind of stuff are they involved with or what are they passionate about that you want to encourage in that in them? It's actually interesting that you just brought up Me Too because our envision for the, we put out one magazine a year mm-hmm. um, and that's what our cover story was on was oh, um, we had, had Mrs. America who is a part of the Me Too movement. She's actually one of the representatives for the No More organization mm-hmm. before we had the Me Too to movement. And so she talked about her experiences um, being molested as a child mm-hmm. and kind of the ramifications that ha- that has had in her life. And, yeah. and it, I thought it was really interesting because she talks about how it's affected her sex life and her marriage, even now as mm-hmm. an adult. Um, so we, I, I'm really passionate about whatever people are talking about how do we look at that from a Christian context what does this look like Mm -hmm. and how do we have a safe conversation even if we don't all agree with one another I think and I think that's what's really important to this generation is Mm -hmm. we want to just have the conversation yes right and it's Mm -hmm. and we don't even need a resolution which I think is something the church often misunderstands like they want to resolve the package for us and I don't think we need that We, Mm -hmm. we are into just listening to people and from their perspectives and I don't have to agree with you and in order to see, see your point and be grateful yeah. that we just had this conversation. Yeah, that's that's so good. And just getting young, um, you know, young people to understand that, like, hey, like, let's talk about it. I think that's that's really important because, like, I think the history of just conversations has been, like you said, let's find a resolution. And yes, so, 
so I, a little bit about me, as you would ask, like I was expelled from my Christian elementary school in eighth grade. So I am very used to one of the, yeah, I'm very used to having people when you try to have a conversation, essentially tell you that you cannot ask questions like that. Yeah. A Christian. And I think that that's a system that this next generation, and I know for me being a millennial, like I really resent it because mm-hmm. I have, I mean, here's, here's the thing. God absolutely is not only open to somebody's bitter prayers. He answers them. Exactly. I can think of countless times in scripture, Naomi mm-hmm. and Ruth being one of them. Naomi says, call me Mara for I am bitter. I have walked away full and God brought me back empty and God answers her empty prayer. Hannah is praying in the temple, right? Mm-hmm. Cause she is barren. And it says that she is just grieved with bitterness and God hears the prayers of a bitter woman. I don't know why we have to be afraid yeah. of the kind of conversations um, people want to have because God is not afraid to have those conversations. Mm, amen. I 100% agree with that. And that's been my story as well. I, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the church, but then I, ended up at a, at a very conservative fundamentalist seminary. And I just, the more that I would learn about scripture, the more questions I had. And those questions turned into, wait a minute, I don't even know if I believe this, you know, aspect of this or this, or right. there's so many other things that people are talking about and people are wrestling with. And like, I want to wrestle too, you know, like, let's just wrestle in this together. So did you grow up? Um, I mean, I, I know you said you went to a Christian school in eighth grade, but did you, is your family were they religious or? or yes. Okay. My, my, my dad was um, an evangelist. So he actually was in uh, Broadway. He was in shows like Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, and wow. he, somebody had left a religious text in a taxi cab, mm-hmm. ironically enough. And he had grown up with his mom uh, playing the organ in church. So mm-hmm. he had had this religious background and he had like this uh, road to Damascus moment where he found God again and mm-hmm. ended up going to the seminary and became an evangelist. And so my, I always tell people when they ask me about my childhood, I grew up in a van. I mm-hmm. literally everywhere, my dad had one rule, which was he was willing to bring the gospel anywhere, but wherever he was going, his family was coming too. That was very important oh, to him. Awesome. So we all piled into the van almost <laughs> every single weekend. Um, and so I, was able to, I was able to experience God for myself. And also my dad was just a really authentic, an an authentic um, view of Christianity for me. Mm. And so even when the church, I often felt like as a child rejected me and my questions, like my daddy never did. Mm. And so thank God, the greatest year in my life reflecting who God was for me was my dad. But um, for a lot of people, I don't think we realize how for so many people an organization is God to them. Mm. Like that is the closest they will ever get to God is your church. And so how you treat them absolutely is a reflection of how God is treating them. So even for me in eighth grade, it, for some time, it didn't just feel like my school kicked me out. It felt like God had rejected me. And had I not had the the father that I had and the mother that I had, I I truly don't know if I would be um, a Christian today. I mean, that's, that's very special for you because I know a lot of people um, that haven't been their experience, right? Like, it's, it's almost like their own families um, reject them for asking questions. or Absolutely. Yeah, and so I think it's really beautiful that you got that experience. And now you get to be that for other people who, who may not have that experience. And that's so, the thing, right? Yeah. Like, I, I am very passionate in whatever you whatever complaint you have against the church, go ahead and complain. But if you are not willing to get your hands dirty and fix it, mm-hmm. like – 
what's the point? So for me, it's like it, whatever I felt like I didn't have, I think I have a responsibility then to be that for other people. Yeah. That's the way I see it. And I really think we can change the statistics on Christianity in the United States if more people, young people, step up and be the bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's so necessary. And and even just for, uh, uh, we can learn a lot from them too, right? Like just as yes. adults, <laughs> there's so much to learn from the questions of young people. I'm currently, um, I meet with a group of high school girls right now and they, they are I mean, we sat in like our first meeting and opened the Bible and they were like, okay, who cares? Like, why should I care about this? And so that for me was just like a huge, like, okay, I need to take 20 steps back and just like, let's just start with the basics, right? And so it's just, just ask the questions from the beginning, you know, like, yes. we'll read something and they'll literally be like, nah, I don't agree with that. I don't think so. And then so it's just like, okay, you know, they're like, nah, you know, like not even like, so there's just not even like a, okay, so why should we care about this? And yes. so even in that, just reading scripture through that lens, you start to see things so different, right? Like you start to see a lot of action, like actions matter. Literally things that people did, the way that Jesus literally acted towards people or how he, you know, his physical, how he used his physical body for good, you know, that starts to be highlighted you know, in these, in these conversations. Here's what I love about this generation Z right now is they have this institutionalized sense of importance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, it it can be very difficult as a professor because I can just think of like a time that you'll say to a student, um, Hey, like nobody's supposed to be in this area at this time. We're asking you to leave. And they, they will say, I pay to be here. Mm-hmm. like I'm not going anywhere mm-hmm. and I and it's like you have this moment where you're like who does this person think they are but right. at the same hand I tell them all the time I I also I love it and I admire it because I I think in the last day church we are going to need a generation of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that say I don't care mm-hmm. who you think you are or what titles you hold I am not backing down because I just feel in my guts mm-hmm. that this is wrong And I feel like we have this generation. I am telling you, look at the Parkland students. Yeah. Like this is a generation that if you give them a cause, they are going to stand by it 100%. And it's not about the money Mm -hmm. and it's not even about being famous. It's because this cause matters to me. And so Mm -hmm. I've never been more excited. I've never been more excited about the prospect of of where we could go and what God can do. Mm. Amen. That's so encouraging. I think, um, you know, right now with like like we were talking about with the me too and like the church too and there is a lot of of dirt being dug up you know about the church and and it can be discouraging at times but but i mean i'm i'm really excited and encouraged by your excitement and encouragement because <laughs> yeah, because it's true i mean once all the dirt is dug up then there's nothing left but action and doing yes. and moving forward and going so it's really important and it's really special to be working with students you know young students they're going to be the future of the church. They're going to be the next leaders. You know, they're going to be the next pastors and preachers. And I agree. They're the next leaders and we're the leaders now. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so what are we doing? Exactly. Awesome. Um, so if you want to just tell me a little bit about your books, what have you written about? What are you, yeah. What have you dug into or kind of, you know, stuff have you dug up? Yeah. So um, the last book I just got published, it's not out yet. It will be coming out, I think in the next couple months here. Um, is called Confessions of a Christian Wife. 
Mm. And I am, so I'm just, I am super passionate, passionate about authenticity Mm. and just being yourself and not having to clean up the rough edges of who you are or what your marriage looks like or what Mm. your parenting looks like. So that book is a 30 day devotional where we talk about the sometimes uncomfortable topics that maybe we don't like to talk about. So talking about sex and faith and um, just like the me screaming at my husband from the driveway while in my robe, like mm-hmm. I have no problem <laughs> being really honest about mm-hmm. who I am and where God has brought me from and, and where I hope he's still taking me to. So I'm really excited about that book. I hope it does well. Um, mm-hmm. The very first book I actually ever wrote was called Hook, Line, and Sinker. Mm-hmm. And it was a Christian dating book for teens. I wrote that when I was like 20 one or 22 years old and uh, it was born out of I had just I was engaged I'd been engaged for a year and I called off my engagement two months before the wedding and it was it's kind of a a crazy Mm. god story but it was the best decision I ever made right so some Mm. of the best things god ever does (laughs) is not answer the prayers that we are praying oh yeah truly (laughs) and so he blew that relationship up and I'm so grateful because it turned into, I, I didn't realize until we had broken up that this was actually like a dangerous, toxic relationship Mm -hmm. because most of, most of the crazy parts of him did not come out until we broke up. Mm, And once we broke up, it was like, Whoa, like Mm -hmm. I, I, I am not exaggerating. I 1000% believe that he would have killed me. I see that now. And I had a restraining order that went through. And so anyway, I'm really, I I think when it comes to marriage, it is, if you get that one question of your life wrong, Mm -hmm. everything else can go right and none of it will matter. And likewise, if you get that one aspect of your life, right, everything else in life can go wrong and none of it will matter. Um, And so I just think it's a big decision. And I I think a lot of times girls can get flack because we care so much about talking about marriage and Mm -hmm. who am I going to marry? Or at least my students, like it's, it's really important to them. And I'm like, no, it should be important. You're not crazy. There is nothing wrong with you and you're not dramatic. This is the biggest decision you will ever make. And so let's talk about it over and over and over again. Uh, and so you you are married now, so that really fits in. I am married. <laughs> yeah, I I'm married. Um, my husband's name is Seth Day, and we were boyfriend and girlfriend in sixth grade, and then his family moved away. And long story short, God is so good. And so I had given him my number two years prior to the day that he called me, okay. and he called me no lie on the exact night that I called off my wedding. You're kidding. No, on the exact night, and I was literally sobbing in bed, praying my bitter prayers, telling God, how dare you, how could you have brought me this far to leave me, and literally, my phone rings, and I thought it was my um, fiance calling to get back with me, and I was like, I'm not going to do it this time, I I realized that this is a toxic relationship, and it wasn't, it was something, and he had saved that little note that I had given him two years prior, and he called me on the very night that me and my fiance broke up, and he came down and saw me the very next day. And I have been with him ever since, which is probably against all the dating rules, right? Yeah. But for us, it worked out, yeah. and God is so good. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a good story. Um, and I do love how you mentioned that, you know, God is, like, really goes against any rules that you might think <laughs> you have, right? Just in life and dating and everything, you know, that's, yes. that was even similar to my story. Just in, in general, like, I had this whole, these are, you know, these are the rules of Christianity or, like, life and I think that's important like you said to just allow God to break the rules that you, you thought that you had um, and I
and I think that's just great advice for students, for, for all of us on this journey um, of trying to make the world a better place. Like, just let God create the rules for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Much Heather, um, this was wonderful. What, how are ways um, that people can reach you and follow your work? Oh, yeah, they... absolutely. I mean, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Heather T. Day. I think my Facebook page is facebook.com/slash author Heather Thompson Day. And keep encouraging people to, to, to reach out to the next generation and um, to be the kind of leaders that we want them to be. So, yes, awesome. Thank you so much. Well, have a wonderful Thank day. Thank you. I hope you have a good one.